In the northern parts of Italy, in the province of Ravenna, is a town called Lugo. With a population of about 32,000, it's not a huge town. Lugo may not be the most notable of towns, especially not in Italy, which is a country with a very rich history. But it has housed some famous people throughout the years. Count Francesco Baracca was Italy's top flying ace during World War I, and has a monument to his name in the center of town. Attilio Pratella was a famous painter in the early 1900s, and has a street named after him in the southern part of town. While it may not be noticeable when you walk down the sun-drenched streets next to the Rocca Estens, that's the town hall which dates back from the 16th century, Lugo was actually the epicenter of one of the most notorious serial killings in modern history. In October of 2014, a nurse named Danielle Poggiali was arrested on suspicion of murder. Further investigation by prosecutors found that Ms. Poggiali may have been responsible for up to 93 murders during a two-year period. That's almost one victim per week. This would normally raise mass hysteria, especially in such a small town, but no one even noticed a thing. As I said, Ms. Poggiali was a nurse, and it is quite common for patients to pass away at hospitals, without there being a reason to perform an autopsy. After a while though, the other nurses started to get suspicious of how often Miss Pugiali's patients seemed to pass away. However, autopsies still could not prove that any of the patients had been victims to malpractice. So why was it that these killings did not raise more of an alarm among the public? And how come the cause of death could not be traced back to murder? This was because Miss Pugiali had found the perfect murder weapon, potassium chloride. Welcome. To medical examination, a medical podcast about non-medical things. I'm Pontus Carlson. I should probably start by adding that Miss Poggiali, if found guilty, would be far from the first serial killer to use potassium chloride as her weapon of choice, especially in a hospital setting. Potassium chloride is also one of the active ingredients in the lethal cocktail injection given to criminals during executions. When I was a kid, my father told me about the perfect murder weapon, something that one of his former teachers had once told him. It would be a potassium injection. At the time, I didn't understand how this was possible, and I remember him telling me something about how it was untraceable after someone had died. So, the question still stands in my mind, is it the perfect murder weapon? And if it is, how? To evaluate potassium's potential as a weapon, we must first consider its natural existence in the human body. And to understand how potassium affects the body, we also need some basic understanding of how cells work. Each cell in your body is surrounded by a wall, the cell membrane. This wall makes it possible for a cell to keep particles on the inside, that's intracellularly, or on the outside, that's extracellularly. This regulation is made possible by certain transporters, or channels, in the wall. Channels are generally seen as open ducts, where certain particles can pass through freely, 
while transporters can be either active, meaning that they need energy to work, or passive, this requires no energy. All this might be a bit difficult to understand, but we can simplify it. Try thinking of it like a wall between the inside and the outside of a room. This wall has doors in it, which makes it possible for people to pass through it. Some of these doors are always open and let people pass through all the time, while some doors must be opened by a person on the inside, and some doors have bouncers and will only let certain people through. If we take a closer look at potassium, it exists in higher concentrations on the inside of the cell than on the outside of the cell. This is made possible by having pumps continuously pumping potassium into the cell in exchange for sodium. What this would mean for our wall is that someone on the inside has to actively open the door and push the potassium people inside, while also pushing some sodium people out through the same door. At the same time, only a few potassium people can ever leave our prison, I mean room. This establishes what we call a concentration gradient, where there's a higher concentration of particles on the inside of the membrane, and this is essential for all cellular activity and is not only true for potassium, but also for calcium and sodium and a whole array of other particles and substances in the body. This gives rise to what we call a membrane potential. Potassium, calcium and sodium all exist in ionic forms in the body. This means that they are missing electrons, which gives them an electric charge. The membrane potential is essentially the difference in charges between the inside and the outside of the cell, which makes it dependent on more than just one type of particle. For our wall, this means that people on either side of the wall has different moods. Potassium and sodium people are sort of happy, while calcium people are just overjoyed all the time. This can create a difference in happiness between the two sides of the wall. There are also some negative people around, but let's keep it simple and focus on the happy people. You know, always look on the bright side of life and all that. The next thing we need to understand is depolarization. So, if polarization is having a concentration of particles on one side, depolarization is the term for moving these particles towards the other side, or towards an equilibrium. This is a state of the same concentration on both sides. This equilibrium is also dependent on the membrane potential, which means that these particles want the charges on each side to be the same. Again, in our wall metaphor, this means that a lot of sodium and calcium people storm the room to start a very positive party inside, while the potassium people on the inside moves out just to not have the happiness overflow. Depolarization is what happens in our nerve cells, and this is what we commonly refer to as electric activity in our bodies. A depolarization usually causes an activation of a cell, and makes that cell perform certain actions, such as releasing neurotransmitters or making a muscle contract. So, right, that's a crash course in cell electrolytes. Now, as for potassium's role in all of this, we are going to focus on the heart. Depolarization of the heart cells is necessary for the heart to beat, and this depolarization is regulated by potassium, sodium, and calcium. The heart has certain cells called 
pacemaker cells. These cells have a constant intake of sodium, which changes the membrane potential. And when the potential becomes too high, it causes a flow of calcium into the cell, which is the depolarization. This depolarization is then carried over from these pacemaker cells to the heart muscle cells. When these cells are exposed to this change in potential, they have a massive intake of sodium, which then leads to an intake of calcium and the depolarization. This, in turn, causes the heart to contract. So, for our room, this means that the pacemaker room has sodium people walking into it at all times, which makes the mood quite positive in that room. This opens the doors to let the calcium people in, who really wants to be part of this party. This party then leaks over to the room next door, which means that a lot of sodium and calcium people on the outside want to join this new party in this new room, and so it continues. What is important to understand here is that there is a refractory period for these sodium channels. This means that they won't open again for a short period, which means that a new depolarization cannot occur. Essentially, the doors won't open for a bit after the party has started. With this basic understanding of the heart, we can finally start asking the interesting questions. Like, why is an overdose of potassium lethal? And why is it untraceable in a dead body? High blood potassium levels, also known as hyperkalemia, causes change in the membrane potential of the pacemaker cells to a more positive state, meaning that they will depolarize at a higher rate, making the heart beat faster, also known as tachycardia. As for the muscle cells, well, having a higher membrane potential causes some of the sodium channels to stay open all the time, which causes the flow of sodium to be much slower when depolarization actually happens. And this causes sort of an offset between open and closed sodium channels, making some depolarizations attempts fail. This means that instead of having the heart beat faster, it actually beats slower as these cells lose their ability to depolarize for a bit. Going back to the room, Raising the amount of available potassium people means that some of these people end up inside the room, which makes the room's happiness level rise. This gets the party going much easier, making room for more parties which try to spread. But since there are more potassium people next door, there's already a party going on, with some sodium doors continuously opening and closing, which means that when the party wants to start, it must do so slowly due to some sodium doors being closed. Trying to start more parties like this will result in some parties never happening. While a slow heartbeat can certainly be a worrisome feeling, it is in most cases not fatal. It's what happens after that kills you. Sort of like, it's not the fall that kills you, it's the horribly painful landing. This slow heart rate is followed by what we call ventricular tachycardia. This is when the lower half of the heart beats way, way, way too fast and makes it very inefficient at pumping out blood. Trying to research this, I couldn't find any good sources explaining why this happens, so this is more speculation on my part. It could be that the rising membrane potential gets so high that the heart muscle cells, which should normally only depolarize on demand from the pacemaker cells, start to depolarize on their own. This means that the potential gets high enough for the depolarization to happen right after the repolarization is over. 
repolarization is also done faster during higher levels of potassium in the blood, something that has been observed but is poorly understood. As for the doors, this explanation would mean that there are so many happy potassium people in the room next door that they just start their own party by opening the doors and letting the sodium people in. And as soon as the party is over, they just start a new party again. This metaphor is starting to sound really ridiculous now. After a short while, the heart will just stop. Something that's called asystole, or may also be known as flatlining. Either because it can't beat this fast for too long, or because the potassium levels become so high that the membrane potential becomes too high to keep the cells functioning. And this is why you die from potassium poisoning. It should be noted that these changes in the heart can be seen on ECG monitoring if potassium is slowly injected. But if high levels are rapidly injected, the death occurs so fast that these changes can't be seen, which would make it an effective weapon in creating a seemingly spontaneous death. Now to the second problem. Why is potassium untraceable in a body after death? Well, I guess I should say virtually untraceable, but more on that in a bit. This is because the body has a lot of potassium in it already that isn't normally visible in the blood. In fact, up to 98% of all the body's potassium is stored in the cells and only 2% can be seen in the blood. When the body stops working properly, as in the heart won't pump or the lungs won't breathe, the cells in the body start to die and their membranes break. This will release a lot of potassium, making the blood levels ridiculously high. This will mask any initial rise in potassium that might have been the cause of death in the first place. Remember how I said it's virtually untraceable? Potassium poisoning can actually be seen inside the liquid of the eye. This is because it takes longer for potassium to get there, so an abnormal rise in potassium in the eye shortly after death could point towards potassium poisoning. This is, however, quite an unreliable method, as the potassium levels will start to rise sooner or later. There is a third problem with using potassium as a murder weapon, and that is the means of administration. If you're going to poison someone, you will need to give the poison to them somehow. It's not really practical to have anyone eat a whole lot of potassium to try and poison them. That would mean a lot of bananas. And some sources even state that this might be impossible, as the potassium uptake in the intestines might be a rate-limiting factor. No, you would have to inject it. And injecting someone with something just seems like a hassle altogether. This is probably why most potassium homicides happen in hospital settings. These patients already have needles right into their veins. Well, that, and also because potassium is available at hospitals, and maybe not so much in other places. So, in conclusion, is potassium the perfect murder weapon? It might be as close as you're ever going to come to a perfect murder weapon, but it certainly has its drawbacks, as clearly shown by the murderers who have been caught using it. I'm sorry for the complicated nature of this episode, but I really wanted to go in depth on this subject. And as a final note, please don't murder anyone, whether it be with potassium or any other way, it's just a bad idea.